I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister, an author, but most importantly, a crime junkie. I love reading and I love crime, so what better way than to spend my time with crime writers and find out how they tick and how they marinate together characters, motives, killer instincts, murder suspects and their comeuppance. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. In this episode of Behind the Yellow Tape, I speak with award-winning crime writer Sandra Hempel, whose books include The Medical Detective and The Inheritor's Powder. A happy welcome to the program, Sandra. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. Right, now, um, we, we'll talk about your books in a moment, but my, yes. one of my first questions is, is, when did you start to write? I can't really remember a time when I haven't written. I think as soon as I learnt to write, I was writing little stories, little episodes, little descriptions. Uh, just as, as soon as I learned to read, I was desperately picking up all the books I could you know, manage to cope with at that age. So um, it's really been a lifelong thing, both reading books and writing. Um, so for as long as you can remember in childhood, you, mm. you've been writing. Yes, I remember writing little stories, yes, when I was very young. And what did you do with them? Did you send them off to a little um, a childhood, like Bunty or Mandy or any magazine or anything like that? No, no, um, none of them were um, really up to that standard. And it was just for me, really. I just enjoyed doing it. And um, I do remember actually sending off a comic strip to idea to um, a, a magazine when I was, I must have been, oh, actually quite late, I must have been about 14 or 15, and being most disgruntled because they didn't immediately, you know, fling up their hands in delight and publish it. Uh, and now looking back on it, I, I mean, it was totally embarrassing. It was so bad, and I had made that classic mistake of putting forward an idea, putting forward a piece of work that I wanted to write, but not thinking about where I was sending it and who the readers were likely to be and whether it was something that they would normally want to read, the people who bought that, that comic. Uh, so, uh, and that's a lesson I think that a lot of uh, people who are starting to write for the first time, but want to be published, want to see their work in print, don't think about really, you know, who, who's going to read this? Who am I writing for? Listening to this reminds me of when I was about that age. I wrote a story and um, I, I showed it to my best friend and she's like, oh, this is good. And um, I've never told this to anyone before, by the way. <laughs> so this oh, the I'm very extremely flattered then. <laughs> the first time I'm telling this actually in public. And um, so my best friend took it and she liked it. And what she did, um, so she liked it and she spread the word. And then everyone in the mm -hmm. class wanted to read it. So she, in a way, became my agent and she oh, um, wow. and manager. And she set up like um, a schedule of who could um, take, take, and it was, you know, it was, um, I, I think it was handwritten. I don't think it was even typewritten at the time. It was handwritten. And then she would, it's, um, she, in a way, became like a librarian. And then, you know, someone would take the book out and she'd write the name down and then return it. Not a book, I say a book, it was, it was 
I don't know, two or three pages of foolscap. And she would send it out, write the name down, and they'd return it, which, which I found absolutely amazing, the fact that they returned it. And then she'd take take it off, and then she'd say, someone else would come and get it, and this went on. Totally unbelievable when I think about it now. That is wonderful. I mean, what a best friend to have. I mean, that's a real best friend, isn't it? You know, <laughs> doing something like that for you. And to have that push and that imagination to do that as well. Um, it is just extraordinary. Has she gone on to, you know, be, be some amazing literary agent or? Um, no. Sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I think she. I think. Um, I think she. I think that was probably quite enough for her, actually. <laughs> In her life. Yeah. So, um, if, are you, have you always been a writer then? So have, have you had another job? No, I've. Uh, I've I'm a journalist um, by career if you like and um, I was fairly clear early on that that's what I wanted to do and I've been was I still think of myself as being a journalist but I don't really do anything any journalism anymore and um, that's how I earned my living uh, for years and years and years and then when I had a little bit more time on my hands and I was working as um, a freelance and so I could be more flexible, uh, I then started to turn my attention to books and, uh, and, and wrote The Medical Detective and then The Inheritor's Powder. And now that's what I do. I do a bit of tutoring in creative writing too. But um, mainly, I think of myself as being an author nowadays. But yes, I have always, always earned my living from writing one way or another. Well, you mentioned um, the medical detective. Let's talk about that then. Tell us more about mm-hmm. that. Okay. Well, the medical detective, it's, it's um, based on a, it's a true story. And uh, it is very, very pertinent at the moment, particularly timely, because it is about a horrendous epidemic that swept the world in the 19th century and killed millions of people across the world. Nobody understood it. Nobody could work out where it had come from or how it was spreading or how to stop it, and there were no treatments. And it is uh, an extraordinary, I wrote it like a thriller, because I think it is a thriller, I think it lends itself to that. It is a mystery, extraordinary mystery story. And the hero, if you like, is um, a reclusive doctor called John Snow, who was living in Soho in the mid 19th century, And he worked out how this disease was spreading, but his ideas were just too revolutionary at the time. Nobody had come across the idea that a disease could be spread by water before. But is John Snow, was was he a real person, John Snow? Was was he a real person? Yes, he's a real person. And um, he, yes, I say, he lived in Soho. He was a very reclusive person and um, not had no friends, had no influence in the corridors of power, Um, no friends in the Royal College of of Physicians, which was where the creme de la creme of the medical profession 
um, had their being. And um, he was just totally, he was ridiculed for years and years. And the very sad thing about it was that he told people how to avoid getting this disease. And the um, methods were very, very simple and they were well within everybody's uh, capabilities at the time. You didn't need to have any special medicine or do anything out, out of the ordinary that would cost you money or anything. It was just really, really simple. Um, and yet nobody would believe him. No one took any notice of him. And he was condemned. It was only really after his death that people started gradually to realise that he was, he'd been right all along. So it's really his story. But um, as I say, I wrote it like a thriller. I wrote it because I thought it was a thriller. It was, you know, a battle, a race against this terrible killer. Um, and... Um, trying to find out how to prevent this thing happening, how to stop it in its tracks. And, and it was quite a, a fast-paced tale, actually, when you followed, did the research and followed the history through. Yes, so, was, yes, that was the first one. I was going to ask you about the research. How, how did you do that? Most of the research was done at the Welcome Libraries. It's a wonderful resource. Um, yes, it's quite a few people know about it now because I think they've started to um, put themselves out there and um, stage lots of events and really think about how to encourage the public in to think about medicine and our bodies and how we live and body and mind, all those kind of things that are very topical. Uh, but uh, when I first started doing the research, it was quite unknown, um, and it was really only a secret between you know, academics and a few clinicians um, who will go there. But they have the most extraordinary collection of history of medicine books. And I found most, not all, but most of what I needed there. And there were reports on epidemics, there were um, back, all the back copies of the Lancet, so you could read what was going on, you know, in the 19th century, you could just look up the index cholera, see all these articles, letters that doctors had written in arguing about the disease. And they also had uh, some of, uh, John uh, Snow wrote two pieces of research. His first one was just a little pamphlet setting out his ideas because he hadn't formulated them properly at that stage. But then he wrote um, uh, what is now a really seminal work. He did a huge piece of research and published that at his own expense. And that's there too. And so is his diary. He kept a, um, a clinical diary. So all of that material. And, um, and there are other main um, place for research was the National Archives at Kew because they have all the government papers and so you can look up all the department what was then uh, what we now know as the Department of Health I think it was the Board of Health um, in those days and you can look up all of the records for um, the period and so you could read what the government was thinking about cholera um, and what it was deciding to do about it and, and, um, and follow the government's progress in trying to combat this disease. What attracted you to this idea of writing a book about that? Well, I think I came at it with the idea that I had been writing quite a lot about um, 
med medicine at the time as a journalist. I've been doing, somehow, I haven't chosen to do it, but it's funny in journalism, sometimes somebody asks you to write a piece about a particular topic, and you do. And then someone sees your byline and they think, oh, she appears to know something about that. So someone else asks you to do something. And before you know where you are, you're suddenly, that's a little area of expertise. And I was, that happened to me with medical stuff. And I was very happy about that because I found it fascinating. And so when I was thinking about a book, I actually thought about, I don't know if people remember this, but some years back, there was a book by Dana Sobel uh, called uh, Longitude, and it was about a watchmaker, John Harrison, I believe he's called, in the 18th century, who had made a clock which kept time when ships were crossing the equator, which was really important in trade because um, it helped, it meant that they knew where they were, whereas previously clocks apparently had not kept time properly, and it meant it was incredibly difficult for them to work out just whereabouts they, they were. And I thought, and there must be a cracking tale like that in the history of medicine, um, you know, which would be just as interesting and a tale that perhaps, you know, people didn't know about. And I remembered hearing very vaguely about a doctor who had taken a handle off a pump, a pump well, in somewhere in London in the 19th century and proved that a, that a disease was waterborne. And I went to look it up. I didn't know who the doctor was. I didn't know which part of London it was. In fact, I thought it was East End. <clears throat> rather than Soho, and I didn't know what the disease was. So that shows, you know, how much I had to learn and research. And I went to look it up, and I found that it was just fascinating. And as I said, there was so much material there about it, um, including a government report in the Soho area where the, the government had sent in three inspectors uh, with a brief to try to find out how cholera was spreading because there'd been a huge virulent outbreak in Soho. And the inspectors went door to door asking people a incredible range of questions because they didn't know where to start really. So they asked them, well, they looked at their living conditions and they asked them how much alcohol they drank um, and they asked them where they worked and they asked them the kind of people they mixed with and what their living conditions were. And then they went all around the lanes and they reported on the state of the buildings and the state of the drains and the state of the streets and put all of this into a massive report. Uh, but of course, they had so much information and they didn't know what they were looking for in the first place. So it didn't help. I mean, they were just blinded by data, but there was no clue as to what this data meant. They couldn't pull out any trends. They couldn't see any clues in this massive information, but it's all there in the Wellcome Library. So, you know, you get, this extraordinary uh, look into the day-to-day -day minutia of these people at that time. Uh, and, you know, how many people had died, house by house, how many people had died from the disease. So that was a huge resource as well, because that really takes you into the world uh, that you're writing about. And I think that's so, so important. 
That is. I, I have actually been to the Welcome Museum. Um, I spent a little time there, but it was always my intention to go back again and mm -hmm. to um, really explore what, what's on offer. So, so thank, thank you for that. Can we talk about your next book? Yes. Um, this is called The Inheritor's Powder. The Inheritor's Powder is arsenic, what was known at the time as white arsenic. Again, it's 19th century um, history. And um, this really is, is, is a whodunit. And I loved it because I love detective stories. I love murder mysteries. And this really was one. And arsenic was called the inheritor's powder because it was, if you were um, desperately waiting for your very wealthy elderly relative to leave this mortal coil so that you could get your hands on their fortune and perhaps pay off all these tradesmen who were pestering the life out of you and generally have a more comfortable life for yourself, then arsenic was your weapon of choice in those days. Um, it was, I mean, what's known as white arsenic is um, a very harmless looking powder and it's very easily confused with sugar or salt. It's um, odorless, it's tasteless, it dissolves very, very easily in warm food or drink. And its symptoms are very similar to some natural diseases which were quite prevalent at the time, including cholera, actually, but also food poisoning. And there was a hell of a lot of that around in those days because food hygiene was so poor. And um, also, you, it takes a very small dose to kill someone. And big thing was you could buy it then over the counter with no questions asked for a few pence. So all in all, it was, you know, the perfect murder weapon. And this tells the story of how uh, it's a real murder mystery happened in the 1830s in Plumstead, which is southeast London, but then was a little village. And um, there was a, a chemist who was called in to do a, an analysis of the specimens because the victim had, it was thought that the victim had been poisoned, and but nobody could prove it, and nobody could prove who'd done it. Um, and the chemist ran some tests on the person's stomach contents and the grouts in a coffee jar because it was thought that coffee might have been the source of the poison. And he was just very taken aback at how rudimentary these tests were. So he went off and spent three years inventing his own test. And that remained the gold standard for um, the presence, finding the presence of arsenic right up to the 1970s. So, uh, and if you ask doctors, elderly retired doctors nowadays, sometimes say, oh yes, the Marsh test. I remember learning about that in my very, uh, you know, when I was training. And uh, so, you know, it, it held sway for a very, very long time. But the murder mystery, I tried to write it like a, an Agatha Christie. I left revealing the name of the murderer until almost the last page when he does get exposed. But um, I, I, yes, I really, really enjoyed writing it like that. I thought that was great fun. 
I'm glad you mentioned Agatha Christie because I was just about to ask you about her. Is she your favorite crime writer? Um, I like her a lot. Um, it's I started out. Uh, she was she was the first crime author that I ever read, and I remember getting one of her paperbacks when I was on holiday. I must have been about thirteen, and I parents took me into a bookshop and said, you know, buy a book. And um, and I got this Agatha Christie, and I thought it was terrific. And I read practically everything she well, quite everything she'd written. She has an enormous output, but an awful lot of her books, one after the other, when I was a young teenager. And then, of course, you know, I suddenly got a bit too um, sniffy and a bit too superior and went off and, well, rightly so, I mean, keep reading the same thing, and read a lot of proper literature for quite a long time. Now, I wouldn't read her again, but I come back to admiring her because now knowing a bit more about what I know about how to write and structure a book, I can see how clever she was and how skilled she was. So uh, yes, I mean, I do admire her a, a lot. Now my favorite crime book I, has to be um, Crime and Punishment, I think. I mean, it's not a whodunit. We know from the very beginning who did it, but it is a crime story. And I love Dostoevsky. And I, I think that is of all um, the, the crime books. I, th I would say if I had to pick one, it would be that. Told me that. So, have you got a fictional murder that you can think of that you can share with us? Um, I'm sure there must be. I'm sure I, I'm just trying to think what I've read most recently that I really like. I mean, I think actually maybe it would be um, a John Le Carre, and again, it's not a standard sort of murder. He doesn't write murder mysteries, but he does write kind of thrillers where you need to know what's happened and you have to wait till the end of the book to find out, you know, what's what's happened. Um, so uh, I think, I know, I think one of my actual favourite books, and it's a very little book, and it was written, I think it was um, John Le Carre's first novel, first published novel, before, I mean, I think it was, um, it predated, um, well, well and truly predated books, big books like Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People, and um, the ones which, you know, he's been famous for more recently, but uh, The Spy Who Came In For The Cold, I mean, was obviously the one that really made his name. But before that, there was a very small book, little book, called Call For The Dead, and, and Smiley appears in that, George Smiley appears in that. And it's, um, again, of course, it's, a spy, it's um, a spy story, but it is a murder mystery. And um, I really like that book. It's, it's very neat. It's very tightly written, beautifully structured. The characters are terrific. Uh, and so are the little descriptions of people. I love the way he just drops a quick phrase or a couple of words in and just immediately takes you there and gives you, you know, so much. I remember he, he was talking about a woman who uh, was, he described her as sitting on a sofa 
looking like a drowned child waiting to be rescued. And I just, that's phrases like that, which stick in your mind, you don't need to say anymore. You can see the woman, you know what she's looking like, you know the situation that she's in, um, you know, and you don't need anything more really. So yeah, I love the way that he does that. Which leads me on to ask, um, name one thing that you enjoy about crime writing. I enjoy the tussle with the structure. It's like doing a puzzle, really. And, um, you know, and you can struggle and struggle with it and trying to get this plot to work out and realizing I want to do that. Oh, no, I can't do that because that means, you know, that this bit won't work. So how do I reconcile those two things? And is there a way of getting around it? And shall I have to start again? And, um, Yes, so there are times when I absolutely loathe it, you know, and really curse it. But then when it comes right, it's great. It's so satisfying. And I think I, I, there's a lovely phrase from um, Dorothy Parker, which is, I hate writing, but I love having written. And I think there's quite a lot in that. I think sometimes if you're a writer and it's not going well, you know, it's really hard work, and sometimes you can think, why did I, why am I doing this? Why, I, why did I saddle myself with this? But then, you know, if you do manage to crack it, it's so satisfying, and you're so pleased. So it's worth it in the end, I think. Um, yes. Thank you. Thank, thanks for that, um, Sandra. Now, I've got one final question. You're walking down the road, and you see a dead body. What do you do? Um... Well, you go up, don't you? And you don't touch it because you know that you mustn't do that in case there's a crime involved. And I suppose you peer over it and see uh, what there is to see. Uh, and then you call for help, I guess. Is there a right or wrong answer to this? It sounds like a trick question. It's a question I like to, that I like to ask my authors. <laughs> I bet you had some really imaginative and funny answers. Other, you know, I felt that I wanted to say something very clever then, but I couldn't think of anything clever to say. Assuming that I hadn't, it, I, I hadn't killed the person in the first place and I wasn't coming back to have another look, because I gather that's what murderers do. They return to the scene of the crime, don't they? So uh, I'm assuming that I'm an innocent um, passerby here. I'm an innocent bystander. Um, and not involved in any way. That's lovely. That's lovely. Sandra, thank you for being my guest on Behind the Yellow Tape. A very enjoyable and informative episode. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Absolute pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. I am J.A. Lovelock. Join us next time as we go behind the yellow tape and catch up with more episodes at btytpodcasts.com. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.